Good evening. I'm Marcus Leader, and I would like to invite you on a journey of discovery as I pull back the veil and give you a glimpse of the multiverse through the eyes of a Toltec shaman. So sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and turn down the lights. You're now listening to The Shaman's Brew. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of The Shaman's Brew Radio. In tonight's show, I am going to share with you one of the last works of my friend and mentor, Dr. Carlos Castaneda, called The Active Side of Infinity. This is a collection of some of the more memorable moments on Carlos's path. Part 2 will air next week. With that, I present to you The Active Side of Infinity by Dr. Carlos Castaneda. Introduction This is a collection of the memorable events in my life. I gathered them following the recommendation of Don Juan Matus, a Yaqui Indian shaman from Mexico, who as a teacher endeavored for 13 years to make available to me the cognitive world of the shamans who lived in Mexico in ancient times. Don Juan Matus's suggestion that I gather this collection of memorable events was made as if it were something casual, something that occurred to him on the spur of the moment. That was Don Juan's style of teaching. He veiled the importance of certain maneuvers behind the mundane. He hid, in this fashion, the sting of finality, presenting it as something no different from any of the concerns of everyday life. Don Juan revealed to me as time went by that the shamans of ancient Mexico had conceived of this collection of memorable events as a bona fide device to stir caches of energy that exist within the self. They explained these caches as being composed of energy that originates in the body itself and becomes displaced, pushed out of reach by the circumstances of our daily lives. In this sense, the collection of memorable events was, for Don Juan and the shamans of his lineage, the means for redeploying their unused energy. The prerequisite for this collection was the genuine and all-consuming act of putting together the sum total of one's emotions and realizations without sparing anything. According to Don Juan, the shamans of his lineage were convinced that the collection of memorable events was the vehicle for the emotional and energetic adjustment necessary for venturing, in terms of perception, into the unknown. Don Juan described the total goal of the shamanistic knowledge that he handled as the preparation for facing the definitive journey, the journey that every human being has to take at the end of his life. He said that through their discipline and resolve, Shamans were capable of retaining their individual awareness and purpose after death. For them, the vague, idealistic state that modern man calls life after death was a concrete region filled to capacity with practical affairs of a different order than the practical affairs of daily life, yet bearing a similar functional practicality. Don Juan considered that to collect the memorable events in their lives was, for shamans, the preparation for their entrance into that concrete region, which they called the active side of infinity. Don Juan and I were talking one afternoon under his ramada, a loose structure made of thin poles of bamboo. 
It looked like a roofed porch that was partially shaded from the sun, but that would not provide protection at all from the rain. There were some small, sturdy freight boxes there that served as benches. Their freight brands were faded and appeared to be more ornament than identification. I was sitting on one of them. My back was against the front wall of the house. Don Juan was sitting on another box, leaning against a pole that supported the Ramada. I had just driven in a few minutes earlier. It had been a day-long ride in hot, humid weather. I was nervous, fidgety, and sweaty. Don Juan began talking to me as soon as I had comfortably settled down on the box. With a broad smile, he commented that overweight people hardly ever knew how to fight fatness. The smile that played on his lips gave me an inkling that he wasn't being facetious. He was just pointing out to me in a most direct, and at the same time indirect, way that I was overweight. I became so nervous that I tipped over the freight box on which I was sitting, and my back banged very hard against the thin wall of the house. The impact shook the house to its foundations. Don Juan looked at me inquiringly, but instead of asking me if I was all right, he assured me that I had not cracked the house. Then he expansively explained to me that his house was a temporary dwelling for him, that he really lived somewhere else. When I asked him where he really lived, he stared at me. His look was not belligerent. It was rather a firm deterrent to improper questions. I didn't comprehend what he wanted. I was about to ask the same question again, but he stopped me. Questions of that sort are not asked around here, he said firmly. Ask anything you wish about procedures or ideas. Whenever I'm ready to tell you where I live, if ever, I will tell you without your having to ask me. I instantly felt rejected. My face turned red involuntarily. I was definitely offended. Don Juan's explosion of laughter added immensely to my chagrin. Not only had he rejected me, he had insulted me and then laughed at me. I live here temporarily, he went on, unconcerned with my foul mood, because this is a magical center. In fact, I live here because of you. That statement unraveled me. I couldn't believe it. I thought that he was probably saying that to ease my irritation at being insulted. Do you really live here because of me? I finally asked him, unable to contain my curiosity. Yes, he said evenly. I have to groom you. You are like me. I will repeat to you now what I have already told you. The quest of every Nawal, or leader, in every generation of sorcerers, is to find a new man or woman who, like himself, shows a double energetic structure. I saw this feature in you when we were in the bus depot in Nogales. When I see your energy, I see two balls of luminosity superimposed, one on top of the other. And that feature binds us together. I can't refuse you any more than you can refuse me. His words caused a most strange agitation in me. An instant before I had been angry. Now I wanted to weep. He went on, saying that he wanted to start me off on something shamans called the warrior's way, backed by the strength of the area where he lived, which was the center of very strong emotions and reactions. Warlike people had lived there for thousands of years, soaking the land with their concern with war. He lived at that time in the state of Sonora in northern Mexico, about a hundred miles south of the city of Guaymas. I always went there to visit him under the auspices of conducting my fieldwork. When you have absorbed all there is to be absorbed in this area, said Don Juan, I'll move away.
I had no grounds to doubt what he was saying, but I couldn't conceive of him as living anywhere else. He was absolutely part of everything that surrounded him. His house, however, seemed indeed to be a temporary dwelling. It was a shack, typical of the Yaqui farmers. It was made out of wattle and daub with a flat, thatched roof. It had one big room for eating and sleeping and a roofless kitchen. It's very difficult to deal with overweight people, he said. It seemed to be a non-sequitur, but it wasn't. Don Juan was simply going back to the subject he had introduced before I had interrupted him by hitting my back on the wall of his house. A minute ago, you hit my house like a demolition ball, he said, shaking his head slowly from side to side. What an impact. An impact worthy of a portly man. I had the uncomfortable feeling that he was talking to me from the point of view of someone who had given up on me. I immediately took on a defensive attitude. He listened, smirking to my frantic explanations that my weight was normal for my bone structure. That's right, he conceded facetiously. You have big bones. You could probably carry 30 more pounds with great ease, and no one, I assure you, no one would notice. I would not notice. His mocking smile told me that I was definitely pudgy. He asked me then about my health in general, and I went on talking, desperately trying to get out of any further comment about my weight. He changed the subject himself. What's new about your eccentricities and aberrations, he asked with a deadpan expression. I idiotically answered that they were okay. Eccentricities and aberrations was how he labeled my interest in being a collector. At that time, I had taken up with renewed zeal, something that I had enjoyed doing all my life, collecting anything collectible. I collected magazines, stamps, records, World War II paraphernalia such as daggers, military helmets, flags, etc. All I can tell you, Don Juan, about my aberrations is that I'm trying to sell my collections, I said, with the air of a martyr who is being forced to do something odious. To be a collector is not such a bad idea, he said, as if he really believed it. The crux of the matter is not the fact that you collect, but what you collect. You collect junk, worthless objects that imprison you as surely as your pet dog does. You can't just up and leave if you have your pet to look after, or if you have to worry about what would happen to your collections if you were not around. I'm seriously looking for buyers, Don Juan. Believe me, I protested. No, 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 don't feel that I'm accusing you of anything, he retorted. In fact, I like your collector's spirit. I just don't like your collections. That's all. I would like, though, to engage your collector's eye. I would like to propose to you a worthwhile collection. Don Juan paused for a long moment. He seemed to be in search of words, or perhaps it was only a dramatic, well-placed hesitation. He looked at me with a deep, penetrating stare. Every warrior, as a matter of duty, collects a special album, he went on. An album that reveals the warrior's personality. An album that attests to the circumstances of his life. Why do you call this a collection, Don Juan, I asked in an argumentative tone, or an album, for that matter. Because it is both, he retorted. But above all, it is like an album of pictures made out of memories. Pictures made out of the recollection of memorable events. Are those memorable events memorable in some specific way? I asked. They are memorable because they have a special significance in one's life, he said. My proposal is that you assemble this album by putting in it the complete account of various events that have had profound significance for you.
Every event in my life has had profound significance for me, Don Juan, I said forcefully and felt instantly the impact of my own pomposity. Not really, he replied, smiling, apparently enjoying my reactions immensely. Not every event in your life has had profound significance for you. There are a few, however, that I would consider likely to have changed things for you, to have illuminated your path. Ordinarily, events that change our path are impersonal affairs, and yet extremely personal. I'm not trying to be difficult, Don Juan, but believe me, everything that has happened to me meets those qualifications, I said, knowing that I was lying. I wanted to apologize, but Don Juan didn't pay attention to me. It was as if I hadn't said a thing. Don't think about this album in terms of banalities or in terms of a trivial rehashing of your life experiences, he said. I took a deep breath, closed my eyes, and tried to quiet my mind. I was talking to myself frantically about my insoluble problem. I most certainly didn't like to visit Don Juan at all. In his presence I felt threatened. He verbally accosted me and didn't leave me any room whatsoever to show my worth. I detested losing face every time I opened my mouth. I detested being the fool. But there was another voice inside me, a voice that came from a greater depth, more distant, almost faint. In the midst of my barrages of known dialogue, I heard myself saying that it was too late for me to turn back. But it wasn't really my voice or my thoughts that I was experiencing. It was rather like an unknown voice that said I was too far gone into Don Juan's world and that I needed him more than I needed air. Say whatever you wish, the voice seemed to say to me, but if you were not the egomaniac that you are, you wouldn't be so chagrined. That's the voice of your daily mind, Don Juan said, just as if he'd been listening to or reading my thoughts. My body jumped involuntarily. My fright was so intense that tears came to my eyes. I confessed to Don Juan the whole nature of my turmoil. Your conflict is a very natural one, he said, and believe you me, I don't exacerbate it that much. I'm not the type. I have some stories to tell you about what my teacher, the Nawal Julian, used to do to me. I detested him with my entire being. I was very young, and I saw how women adored him, gave themselves to him like nothing. And when I tried to say hello to them, they would turn against me like lionesses, ready to bite my head off. They hated my guts and loved him. How do you think I felt? How do you resolve this conflict, Don Juan? I asked with more than genuine interest. I didn't resolve anything, he declared. It, the conflict or whatever, was the result of the battle between my two minds. Every one of us human beings has two minds. One is totally ours, and it is like a faint voice that always brings us order, directness, purpose. The other mind brings us conflict, self-assertion, doubts, hopelessness. My fixation on my own mental concatenations was so intense that I completely missed what Don Juan had said. I could clearly remember every one of his words, but they had no meaning for me. Don Juan looked directly into my eyes and very calmly repeated what he had just said. I was still incapable of grasping what he meant. For some strange reason, Don Juan, I can't concentrate on what you're telling me, I said. I understand perfectly why you can't, he said, smiling expansively. And so will you, someday, at the same time that you resolve the conflict of whether you like me or not. The day you cease to be the me-me center of the world. In the meantime, he continued, 
Let's go back to the idea of preparing your album of memorable events. I should add that such an album is an exercise in discipline and impartiality. Consider this album to be an act of war. Don Juan's assertion that my conflict of both liking and not liking to see him was going to end whenever I abandoned my egocentrism was no solution for me. In fact, that assertion made me angrier. It frustrated me all the more. And when I heard Don Juan speak of the album as an act of war, I lashed out at him with all my poison. The idea that this is a collection of events is already hard to understand, I said in a tone of protest. But that on top of all this, you call it an album and say that such an album is an act of war is too much for me. It's too obscure. Being obscure makes the metaphor lose its meaning. How strange it's the opposite for me, Don Juan replied calmly. Such an album being an act of war has all the meaning in the world for me. I wouldn't like my album of memorable events to be anything but an act of war. I wanted to argue my point further and explain to him that I did understand the idea of an album of memorable events. I objected to the perplexing way he was describing it. I thought of myself in those days as an advocate of clarity and functionalism in the use of language. Don Juan didn't comment on my belligerent mood. He only shook his head as if he were fully agreeing with me. After a while, I either completely ran out of energy or I got a gigantic surge of it. All of a sudden, without any effort on my part, I realized the futility of my outbursts. I felt embarrassed, no end. What possesses me to act the way I do? I asked Don Juan in earnest. I was at that instant utterly baffled. I was so shaken by my realization that without any volition on my part, I began to weep. Don't worry about stupid details, Don Juan said reassuringly. Every one of us, male and female, is like this. To resolve this conflict is a matter of intending it, he said. Shamans beckon intent by voicing the word intent loud and clear. Intent is a force that exists in the universe. When shamans beckon intent, it comes to them and sets up the path for attainment, which means that shamans always accomplish what they set out to do. Do you mean, Don Juan, that shamans get anything they want, even if it is something petty and arbitrary, I asked? No, I didn't mean that. Intent can be called, of course, for anything, he replied. But shamans have found out, the hard way, that intent comes to them only for something that is abstract. That's the safety valve for shamans. Otherwise, they would be unbearable. In your case, beckoning intent to resolve the conflict of your two minds, or to hear the voice of your true mind, is not a petty, trivial, or arbitrary matter. Quite the contrary, it is ethereal and abstract, and yet as vital to you as anything can be. Don Juan paused for a moment, then he began to talk again about the album. My own album being an act of war demanded a super-careful selection, he said. It is now a precise collection of the unforgettable moments of my life and everything that led me to them. I have concentrated in it what has been and will be meaningful to me. In my opinion, a warrior's album is something most concrete, something so to the point that it is shattering. I had no clue as to what Don Juan wanted, and yet I did understand him to perfection. He advised me to sit down, alone, and let my thoughts, memories, and ideas come to me freely. He recommended that I make an effort to let the voice from the depths of me speak out and tell me what to select. 
Don Juan told me then to go inside the house and lie down on a bed that I had there. It was made out of wooden boxes and dozens of empty burlap sacks that served as a mattress. My whole body ached, and when I lay down on the bed it was actually extremely comfortable. I took his suggestions to heart and began to think about my past, looking for events that had left a mark on me. I soon realized that my assertion that every event in my life had been meaningful was nonsense. As I pressed myself to recollect, I found that I didn't even know where to start. Through my mind ran endless disassociated thoughts and memories of events that I had experienced, but I couldn't decide whether or not they had had any meaning for me. The impression I got was that nothing had had any significance whatsoever. It looked as if I had gone through life like a corpse, empowered to walk and talk but not to feel anything. Having no concentration whatsoever to pursue the subject beyond a shallow attempt, I gave up and fell asleep. Did you have any success, Don Juan asked me when I woke up hours later. Instead of being at ease after sleeping and resting, I was again moody and belligerent. No, I didn't have any success, I barked. Did you hear that voice from the depths of you, he asked. I think I did, I lied. What did it say to you, he inquired in an urgent tone. I can't think of it, Don Juan, I muttered. Ah, you are back in your daily mind, he said, and patted me forcefully on the back. Your daily mind has taken over again. Let's relax it by talking about your collection of memorable events. I should tell you that the selection of what to put in your album is not an easy matter. This is the reason I say that making this album is an act of war. You have to remake yourself ten times over in order to know what to select. I clearly understood then, if only for a second, that I had another way of perceiving, different from my daily perception. However, the thought was so vague that I lost it instantly. What remained was just the sensation of an incapacity to fulfill Don Juan's requirement. Instead of graciously accepting my incapacity, though, I allowed it to become a threatening affair. The driving force of my life in those days was to appear always in a good light. To be incompetent was the equivalent of being a loser, something that was thoroughly intolerable to me. Since I didn't know how to respond to the challenge Don Juan was posing, I did the only thing I knew how to do. I got angry. I've got to think a great deal more about this, Don Juan, I said. I've got to give my mind some time to settle on the idea. Of course. Of course, Don Juan assured me. Take all the time in the world. But hurry. Nothing else was said about the subject at that time. At home, I forgot about it completely until one day when, quite abruptly, in the middle of a lecture I was attending, the imperious command to search for the memorable events of my life hit me like a bodily jolt, a nervous spasm that shook my entire body from head to toe. I began to work in earnest. It took me months to rehash experiences in my life that I believe were meaningful to me. However, upon examining my collection, I realized that I was dealing only with ideas that had no substance whatsoever. The events I remembered were just vague points of reference that I remembered abstractly. Once again, I had the most unsettling suspicion that I had been reared just to act without ever stopping to feel anything. One of the vaguest events I recalled, which I wanted to make memorable at any cost, was the day I found out I had been admitted to graduate school at UCLA. No matter how hard I tried, I couldn't remember what I'd been doing that day. There was nothing interesting or unique about that day, except for the idea that it had to be memorable. 
Entering graduate school should have made me happy or proud of myself, but it didn't. Another sample in my collection was the day I almost got married to Kay Condor. Her last name wasn't really Condor, but she had changed it because she wanted to be an actress. Her ticket to fame was that she actually looked like Carol Lombard. That day was memorable in my mind, not so much because of the events that took place, but because she was beautiful and wanted to marry me. She was a head taller than I was, which made her all the more interesting to me. I was thrilled with the idea of marrying a tall woman in a church ceremony. I rented a gray tuxedo. The pants were quite wide for my height. They were not bell-bottoms, they were just wide. Another thing that annoyed me immensely was that the sleeves of the pink shirt I had bought for the occasion were about three inches too long. I had to use rubber bands to hold them up. Outside of that, everything was perfect. Until the moment when the guests and I found out that Kay Condor had gotten cold feet and wasn't going to show up. Being a very proper young lady, she had sent me a note of apology by motorcycle messenger. She wrote that she didn't believe in divorce and couldn't commit herself for the rest of her days to someone who didn't quite share her views on life. She reminded me that I snickered every time I said the name Condor, something that showed a total lack of respect for her person. She said that she had discussed the matter with her mother. Both of them loved me dearly, but not enough to make me part of their family. She added that, bravely and wisely, we all had to cut our losses. My state of mind was one of total numbness. When I tried to recollect that day, I couldn't remember whether I felt horribly humiliated at being left standing in front of a lot of people in my gray rented tuxedo with the wide-legged pants, or whether I was crushed because Kay Condor didn't marry me. These were the only two events I was capable of isolating with any clarity. They were meager examples, but after rehashing them, I had succeeded in redressing them as tales of philosophical acceptance. I thought of myself as a being who goes through life with no real feelings, who has only intellectual views of everything. Taking Don Juan's metaphors as models, I even constructed one of my own. A being who lives his life vicariously in terms of what it should be. I believed, for instance, that the day I was admitted to graduate school at UCLA should have been a memorable day. Since it wasn't, I tried my best to imbue it with an importance I was far from feeling. A similar thing happened with the day I nearly married Kay Condor. It should have been a devastating day for me, but it wasn't. At the moment of recollecting it, I knew that there was nothing there and began to work as hard as I could to construct what I should have felt. The next time I went to Don Juan's house, I presented to him my two samples of memorable events as soon as I arrived. This is a pile of nonsense, he declared. None of it will do. The stories are related exclusively to you as a person who thinks, feels, cries, or doesn't feel anything at all. The memorable events of a shaman's album are affairs that will stand the test of time because they have nothing to do with him, and yet he is in the thick of them. He'll always be in the thick of them for the duration of his life, and perhaps beyond, but not quite personally. His words left me feeling dejected, totally defeated. I sincerely believed in those days that Don Juan was an intransigent old man who found special delight in making me feel stupid. He reminded me of a master craftsman I had met at a sculptor's foundry where I had worked while going to art school. The master artisan used to criticize and find flaws with everything his advanced apprentices did and would demand that they correct their work according to his recommendations. 
his apprentices would turn around and pretend to correct their work. I remembered the glee of the master when he would say, upon being presented with the same work, Now you have a real thing. Don't feel bad, Don Juan said, shaking me out of my recollection. In my time, I was in the same spot. For years, not only did I not know what to choose, I thought I had no experiences to choose from. It seemed that nothing had ever happened to me. Of course, everything had happened to me. But in my effort to defend the idea of myself, I had no time or inclination to notice anything. Can you tell me, Don Juan, specifically what is wrong with my stories? I know that they are nothing, but the rest of my life is just like that. I will repeat this to you, he said. The stories of a warrior's album are not personal. Your story of the day you were admitted to school is nothing but your assertion about you as the center of everything. You feel, you don't feel. You realize, you don't realize. Do you see what I mean? All of the story is just you. But how can it be otherwise, Don Juan, I asked. In your other story, you almost touch on what I want, but you turn it again into something extremely personal. I know that you could add more details, but all those details would be an extension of your person and nothing else. I sincerely cannot see your point, Don Juan, I protested. Every story seen through the eyes of the witness has to be perforce personal. Yes, yes, of course, he said, smiling, delighted as usual by my confusion. But then they are not stories for a warrior's album. They are stories for other purposes. The memorable events we are after have the dark touch of the impersonal. That touch permeates them. I don't know how else to explain this. I believed then that I had a moment of inspiration and that I understood what he meant by the dark touch of the impersonal. I thought that he meant something a bit morbid. Darkness meant that for me, and I related to him a story from my childhood. One of my older cousins, a medical student, took me to see a corpse in the morgue. He told me that I owed it to myself to go and see such a sight because it was very educational. It demonstrated the transitory nature of life. What he didn't tell me was that one of the corpses, which had belonged to a young man who had died of tuberculosis, was going to actually move with a rattle on the marble table where all the corpses were lying, as if it were getting ready to sit up. It made a burping sound that was so awful that it burned through me and will remain in my memory for the rest of my life. My cousin, the doctor, the scientist, explained that it was the corpse of a man who had died of tuberculosis and that his lungs had been eaten away by bacilli that had left enormous holes filled with air and that in cases like this, when the air changed temperature, it sometimes forced the body to sit up or at least convulse. No, you haven't gotten it yet, Don Juan said, shaking his head. It is merely a story about your fear. I would have been scared to death myself. However, being scared like that doesn't illuminate anyone's path. But I'm curious to know what happened to you. I yelled like a banshee, I said. My cousin called me a coward, a yellow belly, for hiding my face against his chest and for getting sick to my stomach all over him. I had definitely hooked onto a morbid strand in my life. I told him then the story of my best friend, Roy Goldpiss. He actually had a Polish surname, but his friends called him Goldpiss because whatever he touched, he turned to gold. He was a great businessman. His talent for business made him a super ambitious being. He wanted to be the richest man in the world. However, he found the competition was too tough. According to him, 
Doing business alone, he couldn't possibly compete, for instance, with the head of an Islamic sect, who at that time got paid his weight in gold every year. The head of the sect would fatten himself as much as his body allowed him before he was weighed. Then my friend Roy lowered his sights to being the richest man in the United States. The competition in this sector was ferocious. He went down a notch. Perhaps he could be the richest man in California. He was too late for that, too. He gave up hope that with his chains of pizza and ice cream parlors, he could ever rise in the business world to compete with the established families who owned California. He settled for being the richest man in Woodland Hills, the suburb of Los Angeles where he lived. Unfortunately for him, one of his neighbors was Mr. Marsh, who owned factories that produced A1 quality mattresses all over the United States, and he was rich beyond belief. Roy's frustration knew no limits. His drive to accomplish was so intense that it finally impaired his health. One day he died from an aneurysm in his brain. Roy's wife begged me as his best friend to make sure that the corpse was properly dressed. I went to the funeral parlor where I was led by a male secretary to the inner chambers. At the precise moment I arrived, the mortician, working on a high marble-topped table, was forcefully pushing up the corners of the upper lip of the corpse, which had already entered rigor mortis, with the index and little finger of his right hand, while he held his middle fingers against his palm. As a grotesque smile appeared on Roy's dead face, the mortician half turned to me and said in a servile tone, I hope all this is to your satisfaction, sir. His wife, it'll never be known whether she liked him or not, decided to bury him with all the garishness that, in her opinion, his life deserved. She had bought a most expensive coffin, a custom-made affair that looked like a telephone booth. She had gotten the idea from a movie. Roy was going to be buried sitting as if he were making a business call on the telephone. I didn't stay for the ceremony. I left in the midst of a most violent reaction, a mixture of impotence and anger, the kind of anger that couldn't be vented on anyone. You certainly are morbid today, Don Juan commented, laughing, but in spite of that, or perhaps because of that, you're almost there. You're touching it. The stories that should go in your album of memorable events, he went on, are those that have the dark touch of the impersonal, because they touch not only you, but every one of us human beings. Don Juan Matus set me to the task of finding the events of my life that bore this universal stamp. Events that have profound personal significance for me, and yet which enter into the realm of the abstract, the active side of infinity. What follows are four stories from my album of memorable events, stories gathered over a lifetime on the path of a warrior. First story, A Journey of Power. At the time I met Don Juan, I was a fairly studious anthropology student and I wanted to begin my career as a professional anthropologist by publishing as much as possible. I was bent on climbing the academic ladder, and in my calculations, I had determined that the first step was to collect data on the uses of medicinal plants by the Indians of the southwestern United States. I first asked a professor of anthropology who had worked in that area for advice about my project. He was a prominent ethnologist who had published extensively in the late 30s and early 40s on the California Indians and the Indians of the Southwest and Sonora, Mexico. He patiently listened to my exposition. My idea was to write a paper, call it Ethnobotanical Data, and publish it in a journal that dealt exclusively with anthropological issues of the Southwestern United States. 
I propose to collect medicinal plants, take the samples to the botanical garden at UCLA to be properly identified, and then describe why and how the Indians of the Southwest use them. I envision collecting thousands of entries. I even envision publishing a small encyclopedia on the subject. The professor smiled forgivingly at me. I don't want to dampen your enthusiasm, he said in a tired voice, but I can't help commenting negatively on your eagerness. Eagerness is welcome in anthropology, but it must be properly channeled. Don't you think that you should pay more attention to your formal studies, he continued? Rather than doing field work, wouldn't it be better for you to study linguistics? We have in the department here one of the most prominent linguists in the world. If I were you, I'd be sitting at his feet, catching any drift emanating from him. We also have a superb authority in comparative religions, and there are exceptionally competent anthropologists who have done work on kinship systems in cultures all over the world, from the point of view of linguistics and from the point of view of cognition. You need a lot of preparation. To think that you could do fieldwork now is a travesty. Plunge into your books, young man. That's my advice. Stubbornly, I took my proposition to another professor, a younger one. He wasn't in any way more helpful. He laughed at me openly. He told me that the paper I wanted to write was a Mickey Mouse paper, and that it wasn't anthropology by any stretch of the imagination. Anthropologists nowadays, he said professorially, are concerned with issues that have relevance. Medical and pharmaceutical sciences have done endless research on every possible medicinal plant in the world. There's no longer any bone to chew in there. Your kind of data collecting belongs to the turn of the 19th century. Now it's nearly 200 years later. There is such a thing as progress, you know? Anthropology is the only discipline in existence, he continued, which can clearly substantiate the concept of progress and perfectibility. Thank God that there's still a ray of hope in the midst of the cynicism of our times. Only anthropologists can prove to mankind, beyond the shadow of a doubt, the progress of human knowledge. That's anthropology for you not some puny fieldwork, which is not fieldwork at all, but mere masturbation. It was a blow on the head to me. As a last resort, I went to Arizona to talk to anthropologists who were actually doing fieldwork there. By then, I was ready to give up on the whole idea. I understood what the two professors were trying to tell me. I couldn't have agreed with them more. My attempts at doing fieldwork were definitely simple-minded. Yet I wanted to get my feet wet in the field. I didn't want to do only library research. In Arizona, I met with an extremely seasoned anthropologist who had written a great deal about the Yaqui Indians of Arizona, as well as those of Sonora, Mexico. He was extremely kind. He didn't run me down, nor did he give me any advice. He only commented that the Indian societies of the Southwest were extremely isolationist, and that they distrusted or even despised foreigners, especially those of Hispanic origin. A younger colleague of his, however, was more outspoken. He said that I was better off reading herbalists' books. He was an authority in the field, and his opinion was that anything to be known about medicinal plants from the Southwest had already been classified and talked about in various publications. He went as far as to say that the sources of any Indian curer of the day were precisely those publications, rather than any traditional knowledge. 
He finished me off with the assertion that if there still were any traditional curing practices, the Indians would not divulge them to a stranger. Do something worthwhile, he advised me. Look into urban anthropology. There's a lot of money for studies on alcoholism among Indians in the big city, for example. Now that's something that any anthropologist can do easily. Go and get drunk with local Indians in a bar. Then arrange whatever you find out about them in terms of statistics. Turn everything into numbers. Urban anthropology is a real field. There was nothing else for me to do except to take the advice of those experienced social scientists. I decided to fly back to Los Angeles. But another anthropologist friend of mine let me know then that he was going to drive throughout Arizona and New Mexico, visiting all the places where he had done work in the past, renewing in this fashion his relationships with the people who had been his anthropological informants. You're welcome to come with me, he said. I'm not going to do any work. I'm just going to visit with them, have a few drinks with them, bullshit with them. I bought gifts for them, blankets, booze, jackets, ammunition for twenty-two caliber rifles. My car is loaded with goodies. I usually drive alone whenever I go to see them, but by myself I always run the risk of falling asleep. You could keep me company, keep me from dozing off, or drive a little bit if I'm too drunk. I felt so despondent that I turned him down. I'm very sorry, Bill, I said, the trip won't do for me. I see no point in pursuing this idea of field work any longer. Don't give up without a fight, Bill said in a tone of paternal concern. Give all you have to the fight, and if it licks you, then it's okay to give up, but not before. Come with me and see how you like the Southwest. He put his arm around my shoulders. I couldn't help noticing how immensely heavy his arm was. He was tall and husky, but in recent years his body had acquired a strange rigidity. He had lost his boyish quality. His round face was no longer filled, youthful, the way it had been. Now it was a worried face. I believe that he worried because he was losing his hair, but at times it seemed to me that it was something more than that. And it wasn't that he'd gained weight. His body was heavy in ways that were impossible to explain. I noticed it in the way that he walked and got up and sat down. Bill seemed to me to be fighting gravity with every fiber of his being, in everything he did. Disregarding my feelings of defeat, I started on a journey with him. We visited every place in Arizona and New Mexico where there were Indians. One of the end results of this trip was that I found out that my anthropologist friend had two definite facets to his person. He explained to me that his opinions as a professional anthropologist were very measured and congruous with the anthropological thought of the day but that as a private person, his anthropological fieldwork had given him a wealth of experiences that he never talked about. These experiences were not congruous with the anthropological thought of the day because they were events that were impossible to catalog. During the course of our trip, he would invariably have some drinks with his ex-informants and feel very relaxed afterward. I would take the wheel then and drive as he sat in the passenger seat taking sips from his bottle of 30-year-old Valentine's. It was then that Bill would talk about his uncatalogued experiences. I've never believed in ghosts, he said abruptly one day. I never went for apparitions and floating essences, voices in the dark, you know. I had a very pragmatic, serious upbringing. Science had always been my compass. But then, working in the field, all kinds of weird crap began to filter through to me. For instance, I went with some Indians one night on a vision quest. They were going to actually initiate me by some painful business of piercing the muscles of my chest. They were preparing a sweat lodge in the woods. 
I had resigned myself to withstand the pain. I took a couple of drinks to give me strength, and then the man who was going to intercede for me with the people who actually performed the ceremony yelled in horror and pointed at a dark, shadowy figure walking towards us. When the shadowy figure came closer to me, Bill went on, I noticed that what I had in front of me was an old Indian, dressed in the weirdest getup you could imagine. He had the paraphernalia of shamans. The man I was with that night fainted shamelessly at the sight of the old man. The old man came to me and pointed a finger at my chest. His finger was just skin and bone. He babbled incomprehensible things to me. By then, the rest of the people had seen the old man and started to rush silently towards me. The old man turned to look at them, and every one of them froze. He harangued them for a moment. His voice was something unforgettable. It was as if he were talking from a tube, or as if he had something attached to his mouth that carried the words out of him. I swear to you that I saw the man talking inside his body, and his mouth broadcasting the words as a mechanical apparatus. After haranguing the men, the old man continued walking, past me, past them, and disappeared, swallowed by the darkness. Bill said that the plan to have an initiation ceremony went to pot. It was never performed. And the men, including the shamans in charge, were shaking in their boots. He stated that they were so frightened that they disbanded and left. People who had been friends for years, he went on, never spoke to each other again. They claimed that what they had seen was the apparition of an incredibly old shaman, and that it would bring bad luck to talk about it among themselves. In fact, they said that the mere act of setting eyes on one another would bring them bad luck. Most of them moved away from the area. Why did they feel that talking to each other or seeing each other would bring them bad luck, I asked him. Those are their beliefs, he replied. A vision of that nature means to them that the apparition spoke to each of them individually. To have a vision of that nature is, for them, the luck of a lifetime. And what was the individual thing that the vision told each of them, I asked. Beats me, he replied. They never explained anything to me. Every time I asked them, they entered into a profound state of numbness. They hadn't seen anything. They hadn't heard anything. Years after the event, the man who had fainted next to me swore to me that he had just faked the faint because he was so frightened that he didn't want to face the old man and that what he had to say was understood by everybody at a level other than language comprehension. Bill said that in his case, what the apparition voiced to him, he understood as having to do with his health and his expectations in life. What do you mean by that, I asked him. Things are not that good for me, he confessed. My body doesn't feel well. But do you know what is really the matter with you, I asked. Oh, yes, he said nonchalantly. Doctors have told me. But I'm not going to worry about it or even think about it. Bill's revelations left me feeling thoroughly uneasy. This was a facet of his person that I didn't know. I'd always thought that he was a tough old cookie. I could never conceive of him as vulnerable. I didn't like our exchange. It was, however, too late for me to retreat. Our trip continued. On another occasion, he confided that the shamans of the Southwest were capable of transforming themselves into different entities and that the categorization schemes of bear shaman or mountain lion shaman, etc., should not be taken as euphemisms or metaphors because they were not. Would you believe it, he said in a tone of great admiration, that there are some shamans who actually become bears or mountain lions or eagles? 
I'm not exaggerating, nor am I fabricating anything when I say that once I witnessed the transformation of a shaman who called himself River Man, or River Shaman, or proceeding from river, returning to river. I was out in the mountains of New Mexico with this shaman. I was driving for him. He trusted me, and he was going in search of his origin, or so he said. We were walking along a river when he suddenly got very excited. He told me to move away from the shore to some high rocks and hide there put a blanket over my head and shoulders, and peek through it so I would not miss what he was about to do. What was he going to do, I asked him, incapable of containing myself. I didn't know, he said. Your guess would have been as good as mine. I had no way of conceiving what he was going to do. He just walked into the water, fully dressed. When the water reached him at mid-calf, because it was a wide but shallow river, the shaman simply vanished, disappeared. Prior to entering the water, he had whispered in my ear that I should go downstream and wait for him. He told me the exact spot where to wait. I, of course, didn't believe a word of what he was saying, so at first I couldn't remember where he had said I had to wait for him. But then I found the spot, and I saw the shaman coming out of the water. It sounds stupid to say coming out of the water. I saw the shaman turning into water, and then being remade out of the water. Can you believe that? I had no comments on his stories. It was impossible for me to believe him, but I could not disbelieve him either. He was a very serious man. The only possible explanation that I could think of was that as we continued our trip, he drank more and more every day. He had in the trunk of the car a box of 24 bottles of scotch for only himself. He actually drank like a fish. I've always been partial to the esoteric mutations of shamans, he said to me another day. It's not that I can explain the mutations or even believe that they take place, but as an intellectual exercise, I am very interested in considering that mutations into snakes and mountain lions are not as difficult as what the water shaman did. It is at moments like this when I engage my intellect in such a fashion that I cease to be an anthropologist, and I begin to react, following a gut feeling. My gut feeling is that those shamans certainly do something that can't be measured scientifically or even talked about intelligently. For instance, there are cloud shamans who turn into clouds, into mist. I've never seen this happen, but I knew a cloud shaman. I never saw him disappearing or turning into mist in front of my eyes as I saw that other shaman turning into water right in front of me. But I chased that cloud shaman once and he simply vanished in an area where there was no place for him to hide. Although I didn't see him turning into a cloud, he disappeared. I couldn't explain where he went. There were no rocks or vegetation around the place where he ended up. I was there half a minute after he was, but the shaman was gone. I chased that man all over the place for information, Bill went on. He wouldn't give me the time of day. He was very friendly to me, but that was all. Bill told me endless other stories about strife and political factions among Indians in different Indian reservations, or stories about personal vendettas, animosities, friendships, etc., etc., which did not interest me in the least. On the other hand, his stories about shaman's mutations and apparitions had caused a true emotional upheaval in me. I was at once fascinated and appalled by them. However, when I tried to think why I was fascinated or appalled, I couldn't tell. All I could have said was that his stories about shamans hit me at an unknown, visceral level. Another realization that this trip brought to me was that I verified for myself that the Indian societies of the Southwest were indeed closed to outsiders. I finally came to accept that I did need a great deal of preparation in the science of anthropology, 
and that it was more functional to do anthropological fieldwork in an area with which I was familiar, or one in which there was an entry. When the journey ended, Bill drove me to the Greyhound bus depot in Nogales, Arizona, for my return trip to Los Angeles. As we were sitting in the waiting area before the bus came, he consoled me in a paternal manner, reminding me that failures were a matter of course in anthropological fieldwork, and that they meant only the hardening of one's purpose, or the coming to maturity of an anthropologist. Abruptly, he leaned over and pointed with a slight movement of his chin to the other side of the room. I think that old man sitting on the bench by the corner over there is the man I told you about, he whispered in my ear. I'm not quite sure because I've had him in front of me face to face only once. What man is that? What did you tell me about him, I asked. When we were talking about shamans and shamans' transformations, I told you that I had once met a cloud shaman. Yes, yes, I remember that, I said. Is that man the cloud shaman? No, he said emphatically, but I think he is a companion or a teacher of the cloud shaman. I saw both of them together in the distance various times, many years ago. I did remember Bill mentioning in a very casual manner, but not in relation to the cloud shaman, that he knew about the existence of a mysterious old man who was a retired shaman, an old Indian misanthrope from Yuma who had once been a terrifying sorcerer. The relationship of the old man to the cloud shaman was never voiced by my friend, but obviously it was foremost in Bill's mind, to the point that he believed that he had told me about him. A strange anxiety suddenly possessed me and made me jump out of my seat. As if I had no volition of my own, I approached the old man and immediately began a long tirade on how much I knew about medicinal plants and shamanism among the American Indians of the plains and their Siberian ancestors. As a secondary theme, I mentioned to the old man that I knew that he was a shaman. I concluded by assuring him that it would be thoroughly beneficial for him to talk to me at length. If nothing else, I said petulantly, we could swap stories. You tell me yours and I'll tell you mine. The old man kept his eyes lowered until the last moment. Then he peered at me. I am one Matus, he said, looking me squarely in the eyes. My tirade shouldn't have ended by any means, but for no reason that I could discern, I felt that there was nothing more I could have said. I wanted to tell him my name. He raised his hand to the height of my lips, as if to prevent me from saying it. At that instant, a bus pulled up to the bus stop. The old man muttered that it was the bus he had to take. Then he earnestly asked me to look him up so we could talk with more ease and swap stories. There was an ironic smirk on the corner of his mouth when he said that. With an incredible agility for a man his age, I figured he must have been in his eighties, he covered in a few leaps the fifty yards between the bench where he was sitting and the door of the bus. As if the bus had stopped just to pick him up, it moved away as soon as he had jumped in and the door had closed. After the old man left, I went back to the bench where Bill was sitting. What did he say? What did he say? He asked excitedly. He told me to look him up and come to his house to visit, I said. He even said that we could talk there. But what did you say to him to get him to invite you to his house? He demanded. I told Bill that I had used my best sales pitch and that I had promised the old man to reveal to him everything I knew about medicinal plants from the point of view of my reading. Bill obviously didn't believe me at all. He accused me of holding out on him. I know the people around this area, he said belligerently, and that old man is a very strange fart. He doesn't talk to anybody, Indians included. Why would he talk to you, a perfect stranger? You're not even cute. It was obvious that Bill was annoyed with me. I couldn't figure out why, though. I didn't dare ask him for an explanation. He gave me the impression of being a bit jealous. 
Perhaps he felt that I had succeeded where he had failed. However, my success had been so inadvertent that it didn't mean anything to me. Except for Bill's casual remarks, I didn't have any conception of how difficult it was to approach that old man, and I couldn't have cared less. At the time, I found nothing remarkable in the exchange. It baffled me that Bill was so upset about it. Do you know where his house is? I asked him. I haven't the foggiest idea, he answered curtly. I've heard people from this area say that he doesn't live anywhere, that he just appears here and there unexpectedly, but that's a lot of horse shit. He probably lives in some shack in Nogales, Mexico. Why is he so important? I asked him. My question made me gather enough courage to add, You seem to be upset because he talked to me. Why? Without any ado, he admitted that he was chagrined because he knew how useless it was to try to talk to that man. That old man is as rude as anyone can be, he added. At best, he stares at you without saying a word when you talk to him. At other times, he doesn't even look at you. He treats you as if you didn't exist. The one time I tried to talk to him, he brutally turned me down. Do you know what he said to me? He said, if I were you, I wouldn't waste my energy opening my mouth. Save it. You need it. If he weren't such an old fart, I would have punched him in the nose. I pointed out to Bill that to call him an old man was more a figure of speech than an actual description. He didn't really appear to be that old, although he was definitely old. He possessed a tremendous vigor and agility. I felt that Bill would have failed miserably if he had tried to punch him in the nose. That old Indian was powerful. In fact, he was downright scary. And that concludes part one of The Active Side of Infinity. Be sure to tune in next week as I share with you part two. This is Marcus Leder, and you have been listening to The Shaman's Brew on Jackalope 105 FM on the Jackalope Media Network.